0: Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus on the teaching of God's Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit through the use of 1 John 1.9, simply admitting or acknowledging our sins to god the father we are instantly forgiven because of what christ did on the cross it's not a matter of being saved again it's not a matter of guilt or anything else it's just a matter of cleansing so that we are back in fellowship walking in the light let's bow our heads together in opening prayer Father, we thank you so much that we have the privilege and the freedom to gather together as believers to study your word, that your word is the source of our authority, your word is our guide, it's our direction, it teaches us how to think and what to think. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates our thinking so that we can understand these things and then see how they apply to our lives. Now, Father, we pray as we continue our study in the Old Testament that you would help us to understand these things and see how they apply in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well two weeks ago we looked at the began to look at the two kingdoms after the united monarchy in the Old Testament. You have the divided kingdom. The north is called Israel and the south is called Judah. Now, just by way of review, there are five periods in the history of Israel. There is the United Kingdom from 1050 to 931 B.C. Now, before we get too embedded in our study, you should have a handout. If you were here a few weeks ago, you should still have it. There may be some extras with the kings of Israel and Judah and the prophets, and we're going to spend some time on that, so you might want to get that handy. I noticed that... uh, When Al Xeroxed that, he also Xeroxed the the page and the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, so you just get a little extra freebie chart there. Oh, incidentally, before I forget it, since Jim did forget it, one other announcement is that this Wednesday night, if you show up here, you might think the rapture occurred and somehow you didn't get the Gospel right. We will have Bible class this Wednesday night on Thursday night. This week on Thursday night, I will be attending uh, what's called the National Teaching Pastors Conference in uh, Kansas City this week. This is a group of pastors who are doctrinal pastors, and um, I don't think Ron heard about it. Somehow he got off the list when he moved, and he didn't hear about this in time, so I don't think Ron's going to be there. But uh, there will be a number of other men. The speakers are primarily um, Tommy Ice. Uh, Charlie Fluff, myself, and George Meisinger. I don't know how they're going to change up what happened in the. Uh, what's going to happen at night because some of you may know Chet McCauley, who is the pastor there. He's a good friend of Jay's. And Chet dropped dead of a heart attack Wednesday night. So um, we need to be praying for his family and for the church there as well. This is going to be a tough time, and I know that uh, the first night... Session is now going to be his memorial service so he is now absent from the body and face to face with the lord so he doesn't have to deal with these struggles anymore but we do so we need to continue to pray for them but that will make for somewhat interesting conference anyway you should have this with you and if anybody needs one anybody not have one that should have one we need a couple over here do you have any extras now over there any, any extras? Bryce needs one and Harold needs one back in the back. Okay. Peggy, over here. Okay. We're, okay. We're looking at Israel in terms of the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom is the United Kingdom. Our, our first of all, it begins with the United Kingdom. There are five periods in Israel's history. The first is United Kingdom, that's Saul, David, and Solomon, 1050 to 931 B.C. Then the kingdom divides and fragments. Go back and look at our overall view here. We have the law up to 1440 B.C., then the historical books to 931 B.C. That would be about the first or second chapter of 1 Kings. And then there's the division to Israel in the north with Jeroboam, Judah in the south under Rehoboam. 722 B.C., then the exile and the last three books in the historical section Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther come in after the exile. So we're dealing with what's called the pre-exilic period of the divided monarchy. Now this period extends from 931 to 711 B.C. or that should be 722 B.C. 931 to 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom goes out under uh, divine discipline. After that, you just have the southern kingdom alone, 722 B.C. to 586 B.C. And then in 586 B.C., God takes them out under divine discipline under the fifth cycle of discipline, and they go into 70 years of captivity in Babylon. The northern kingdom was made up of ten tribes, it's interesting, and they just sort of melted into the melting pot of the Middle East and Asia, the typical procedure for the Assyrians was when they conquered a country was to take the local population and then to move them and disperse them so that they would no longer have a, a core identity. So in, in, in other words, to break down their ability to, to revolt. A few weeks ago, I saw a special on, I think it was on A&E, called the Lost Tribes of Israel. And it was fascinating because they went into various pockets of India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Uzbekistan, up through there, in, uh, I, Iran, as well as Ethiopia, showing where various groups of people, even in China, there were groups that still claim to be Jewish. In fact, there were, they have assimilated, obviously, to some degree or another, so they, the uh, Ethiopian Jews are, are black, and the Chinese Jews are Chinese, and the Indian Jews look Indian. But on the passport, on the on the papers, official papers of the Chinese, for example, it is stamped Jew. And the Jewish community in this one village had fallen apart, or had fragmented, 150 years ago. But there were still individuals who lived there, who claimed to be Jews. So these are the so-called lost tribes, ten lost tribes of Israel. They are still scattered, but they do have still have some identity. And many of these groups are coming back to Israel and are uh, being recognized as Jews. And with DNA testing, they can check and make sure that they are indeed Jewish. So that's just fascinating to see how that's taking place before our very eyes. Judah in captivity covers the period from 586 to 536 B.C. when they began to return to the land. And then the post-exilic period covers 536 to 400 B.C. Now, last time as we got through this, we looked primarily at the northern kingdom. We didn't do a detailed study. If you have your, your uh, chart there, you can sort of follow along. It begins with a split between Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. Can you read that okay? Is that fairly clear? If not, you can look at your, your handout. Jeroboam is the first king in the north. He leads the tax revolt against, the, against Rehoboam when he's going to continue the oppressive tax policies, not only continue the oppressive tax policies of Solomon, but he is going to increase the, the weight of taxes. So Jeroboam leads a revolt, and he sets up an alternative religion in the north that claims to be. Based on uh, Yahweh, the worship of Yahweh, just like many Christians claim to be Christians, but they're not following the Bible. The same thing happens. He sets up alternative worship sites in, in uh, Bethel and in Dan, and he builds golden, has golden uh, calves uh, manufactured that are to represent God. And he claims that this is the God that brought them out of Exodus. So we see theological and historical revisionism taking place under Jeroboam, and this is one of the major. Major sins that takes place in the north. From this point on, all of the kings are basically said to follow in the footsteps of Jeroboam the first and to lead the people into idolatry. That is, except for Ahab under the Amrid dynasty. We saw that Ahab married Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, who was the uh, or Ethbaal, who was the high priest of Baal in Tyre, and that brings full blown. Canaanite paganism which they were to have destroyed back into Israel as the official state religion and the worship of Yahweh is outlawed this is when you have the famous conflicts between Elijah and Ahab then there under Jeroboam the second there is a uh, reversal against the Baal worship but they just go back to the uh, Jeroboam the first heresy and so all the kings in the north basically are evil that's what we said last time. All the kings in the north are evil, only six in the south are good. When we stopped last time, I want to take a slight break and look at the prophets. If you look at your chart, what you will see is in a, a, a vertical column there next to the date line, you will see certain, the prophets inserted into their chronological order. Now you might want to circle that or... Uh, highlight that in some way on the overhead. That's in red, so you can see how they fit into the overall flow of history. Now, the the office of prophet did not begin until you're into the uh, first uh, Samuel, into the theocracy, and the first prophet is unnamed. He's just called a man of God, and his task was to inform, Yah- I mean, inform Eli in the name of God, that the house of Eli was going to be replaced by a faithful priest. Eli uh, was a, the high priest, and he was corrupt, and his children were even more corrupt. So Eli, this is prior to the chart that we have on the overhead. You have that unnamed man of God in 1 Samuel 2. And then, of course, Samuel is the first first significant prophet on the scene who anoints both Saul and David and is the voice of the Lord, and this sets a precedent that every king is anointed by a prophet. The prophet precedes, and this shows that every king to be authorized by God must first be anointed by a prophet. This, of course, is the role of John the Baptist. He is a prophet in the line of the Old Testament prophets, and so he must anoint Jesus, and that's what takes place in Jesus' baptism, at the Jordan River. This follows the Old Testament pattern that a king does not reign independently. A human government is not autonomous. It is always under the authority of God and established by, a, by the prophet. So the prophet of John, John the Baptist as a prophet is the one who anoints Jesus in his ministry and this follows the Old Testament pattern. Now there are several other prophets that are mentioned in the Old Testament. You have Nathan who was a prophet and friend of David and he appears for the last time uh, when Solomon is made king. and Nathan is the advisor of, of David. He's the successor of Samuel. And then you have the mention of Ahijah the Shilonite in 1 Kings 11:29 to 40 He's the one who appears before Jeroboam and gives him a prophecy that he will uh, lead a revolt against the uh, southern kingdom. So you could write Ahijah into your notes there and 1 Kings 11:29 to 40 is the first mention of Ahijah. These are non-writing prophets. You have non-writing prophets and writing prophets. Gad, Nathan, Samuel, Ahijah, Shema, Shemaiah is another one. Azariah and Hanani, Jehu. These are all non-writing prophets who appear on the scene and give the uh, word of the Lord, announce who will be king, and give announce various other prophecies. Of judgment. Of course, the greatest two are listed here on the chart Elijah during the reign of Ahab and Elisha during the reign of Jehoram and Jehu. So you have Elijah and Elisha. Elijah comes on the scene during the darkest period of Israel's history when Ahab is the king, married to Jezebel. And they have established uh, Baal worship as the primary state religion. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. And we'll just read the initial statement here. It's interesting how a number of factors often show up in a, in a scripture passage. 1 Kings chapter 17, we read now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead. Now we don't know anything more about his background than that. Gilead is probably across the Jordan. But even that is uncertain and much debated. Elijah just sort of appears out of nowhere into the court of Ahab and announces, "...as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain three these years except by my word." Now, two things are going on here. First of all, if you go back and read the curses, the outline of the five cycles of discipline back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, God announces that with Israel is disobedient, he's going to withdraw rain and the sky will be like, like um, iron and the earth will be like bronze. And that is what is taking place here. He's announcing a drought and a famine. But another thing is going on here, and that is that the state religion is now Baal worship. And Baal, as it's pronounced in the Hebrew, Baal is the god, the storm god. He's the god of thunder. He's the god of rain. He's the god of fertility. And so what Elijah is demonstrating here is two things. Number one, you're under judgment because you've disobeyed God. And yes, indeed, God's judgments will come true. And secondly, God is more powerful than Baal. So then you have the episodes in 1 Kings 17 when Elijah leaves and goes out on his own. And uh, and God basically hides him and takes care of him for several years before he appears back in the court uh, to challenge Ahab. And then you have the episode in chapter 18 when uh, Elijah, Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel and challenges the priests of Baal. Now, that's the whole background. You have to understand Baal is the god of, of uh, fertility. He's the god of rain. He's the god of thunder. And so Elijah erects this enormous altar up on Carmel and he says, and he challenges the priests of Baal. He says, if your god is God, let him uh, strike, strike this with lightning and burn up the altar. And so they dance around and they cut themselves and they go through all the gyrations of the pagan priests and uh, nothing happens Elijah taunts them I think there's something interesting there we don't like that in postmodern America taunting somebody for their religious beliefs is considered intolerant but you just look at Elijah and he's sitting back to what's the matter Is your God you go to the bathroom taking a little rest break you just really uh Challenges them and nothing happens and this goes on most of the day and then they quit and Elijah comes out and he takes these enormous, these enormous uh, pots of water and just douses the entire altar until the water is just running off, fills the gutter around the altar, prays to God and instantly fire comes down from heaven and just vaporizes the, the uh, altar, the sacrifice and everything and then uh, it demonstrates that God is God. Interesting, right after that victory, Elijah goes into the pits of depression because he gets his eyes on himself, thinking he's the only one left. Lord, what are we going to do? I'm the only one left. Nobody's following me. And that's when God tells him, no, there's 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So there's always, there always seems to be a remnant at this time. Well, Elijah is eventually replaced by Elisha during the reign of Jehoram. And Jehu, Jehoram, is the last of, of Ahab's line and he, they are replaced through a bloody coup uh, authorized by God under Jehu. But the problem is that just as with Jeroboam who is authorized to reign in the north, God is judging the Davidic line because of Solomon's compromise and that's why he split the kingdom in two. God's authorized the northern kingdom. He's authorized, the, authorized Jeroboam's king, monarchy and if Jeroboam had been faithful to the Lord God would have sustained him but Jeroboam went into idolatry the same thing happens with Jehu he's anointed by a prophet he's given divine authorization to be the king in the north but he continues to lead the people in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat which is Jeroboam the first so these things continue now if you look at your chart we see taking place in the in the northern kingdom during the ministry, the prophet, prophecy period of Elijah and Elisha. In the south, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, Asa and Jehoshaphat are both seen as good kings. They follow the Lord. And it is during their reign, uh, the reign of Jehoram, Ahaziah, and Ahaziah that Obadiah prophecies. And o- Obadiah's prophecy is one of the minor prophets. Obadiah basically brings a judgment and announces that Edom, which is on the border, uh, southern border of Israel. If you look at the map here on the overhead, here's Jerusalem here. Edom is across the Jordan and southeast of the Dead Sea in this area here. And for a while they are under they're under Jerusalem's control. And then for a while they, are, they, they, they revolt and eventually they're taken out in judgment. This is a prophecy that takes place about two centuries before it's actually fulfilled. So, of course, there, what you'll notice is whenever any prophet prophesies anything that truly foretells the future, the liberals always come along. And by that I don't mean like political liberals. In theology, the liberals are those who don't take the Word of God as the Word of God. The Bible, they say, contains the Word of God or it just is accurate in things related to uh, religion, but it's not accurate historically or in other things. And, of course, there can't be anything such as true predictive prophecy because that would mean that God is really God. So there's always an attempt to redate things, so instead of these prophets foretelling the future, they're actually writing history. But that's not the case. Obadiah, clearly there's a lot of evidence. Obadiah is written during the time the reign of Jehoram as as is Joel. So that's where these two minor prophets fit into the scheme of things during the 9th century B.C. Now, during this time, there is uh, continued apostasy in the north. What we have seen so far is that the kings of the north did not have prophetic sanction, other than um, uh, Jehu and Jeroboam. And then they go through Various stages of apostasy, which means they are rejected by the Lord, and God raises up prophets in order to warn them of divine judgment. Now, God uses two nations during this period to discipline Israel. The first nation that they, He uses are the Arameans, and they are to the north uh, east of Israel. And the second nation, this is the shaded area is the Assyrian Empire. So first the Arameans and then the Assyrians. The Arameans begin as rivals and later become masters. They, they have various victories over Israel and eventually reduce it uh, during this time down in the uh, middle part of the 800s B.C. They reduce uh, Israel to a very small section just around Samaria. It becomes nothing more than sort of a rump state until God sends a deliverer. Now, God always sends unusual deliverers. And the deliverer that God sends, in this case, is Adad-Nerari III, who is the Assyrian king. This is covered in Second Kings 13.25. And so for a while, there is a brief pause in the discipline on the northern kingdom. But then uh, the Aramean state begins to grow stronger and stronger. It looks basically in undefeatable But Assyria is gathering their strength. This ominous cloud is on the horizon. Everybody knows that eventually this this storm is going to come their way. And by 740, the Assyrian Empire begins its move to the west so that the northern kingdom eventually becomes destroyed in 722. Now it's during this time, if you look at the second page, it's during this time that God raises up prophets such as Jonah. Uh, We've already mentioned uh, Amos. uh, Also, Hosea comes up during this time. And it's interesting how how God uses Jonah in this period. Jonah, the basic theme of, of Jonah, which Jonah's life and his ministry was around 800 B.C. to about 780 B.C. He's quite a popular prophet in the north because this just precedes the reign of of Jeroboam II at the early part of his reign and uh, according to 2 Kings 14.25, Jonah is prophesying that there will be tremendous prosperity in the northern kingdom. Their borders will expand. There will be economic prosperity. There will be plenty of food. This is God's grace before judgment. God always follows that pattern. He never never judges without preceding the message with grace. There was a hundred... In 20 years of Noah preaching the gospel prior to the flood, there is always uh, grace. There, uh, there, Moses mentioned, uh, Moses went to Pharaoh uh, 10 times during the plagues, uh, each time announcing judgment, giving Pharaoh the opportunity to follow the Lord and just release the Israelites, but Pharaoh each time refused. So there's always grace before judgment. That is always God's pattern. So. Jonah is quite popular, uh, and then the event from which everybody remembers Jonah. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, in order to warn them of impending divine judgment. Now the thing about Jonah is he's an intense patriot to Israel, and he realizes the threat of the Assyrians. So the last thing he wants to do is go to the enemy and to, tell the, to warn them of divine judgment. He'd just rather sit back and let God wipe them out. So he goes the opposite direction and we all know the story about Jonah and the great fish. It wasn't a whale. It was a great fish. And there are in fact instances and, and stories every now and then of some uh, large fish or shark or uh, in one case I think it was a whale swallowing a, a fisherman and, then they, and they survive. And when they come out because they have spent some time in the gastrointestinal system of a the fish, they are bleached white from the uh, stomach acids. So this makes them quite noticeable as they uh, come out. And if that happened with Jonah, then when he finally arrived in Nineveh, he was presented quite a shocking image. And so this would draw everybody's attention to him. And he announced God's judgment and preached the gospel. And the Assyrians uh, turned to the Lord massively. Hundreds of thousands were saved. And this is what allowed the empire to survive and to execute judgment on the northern kingdom. So Jonah was used to preserve the Assyrians so they in turn could judge the northern kingdom. I'm sure he did not appreciate being used by the Lord in such a way. But that's the story of Jonah and how he fits into the overall scheme as we see that Israel is a blessing. Remember, God told Abraham that I'm calling you out as a people. You will be a blessing to all nations. And even if you are in rebellion, I am still going to fulfill the promise. And so Jonah is sent to the Assyrians. We also see the similar type theme in Amos, which shows God's concern for the Gentiles and that during the Old Testament period, there are still thousands and thousands of Gentiles who are saved as a result of Israel's witness. So it is during this time that, that God... Carries out and fulfills certain aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we said I said earlier there are six good kings in Judah. You might want to put an asterisk or check mark or something by each one of these on your chart: Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Uzziah, Hezekiah, and then Josiah. One of my personal favorites has always been, been Joe Ash because of the what takes place during his life. It's a fascinating story. In fact, it's a tremendous, uh, I think, encouragement to parents about the impact that you can have on your children as young children and the impact that they can have as a result of the doctrine that they learn in the home. We go back and you look at your chart, you'll see that Joash reigns in the south just after Ahab and Jehoram in the north. And what has happened, what happened for background is that Jehoshaphat enters into an alliance with Ahab, and in order to seal that alliance, he has his son Jehoram marry the daughter of Jezebel by the name of Athaliah. Now Athaliah is almost just a shade less wicked than her her mother. And, of course, this indicates that both of these women, this is the grace of God and also his sense of humor, is that both of these women are in the line of Christ. But Athaliah, is, uh, she wants to introduce, her agenda is to introduce Baal worship into the south and to completely do away with all uh, the worship of Yahweh. And she is almost successful. Jehoram is a wicked king. He goes along with all of her policies and he's so wicked that he, when he became king, he feared that there would be a coup led by his brothers, so he had all of them executed. He wipes out everybody in the family. Now remember, this is the Davidic line. God has said, promised David that there will never be a time when you don't have a son on the throne. So the light begins to flicker a little bit here because there's only one left in the Davidic line now, and that's Jehoram, and he is a Baal worshiper. So he has a bloody bloody, violent reign, and he is um, killed. He's assassinated, and he's succeeded by his son Ahaziah, who is in turn killed at the Battle of Ramoth-Gilead. Ahaziah has a very short reign. He doesn't last a year, and so the only person left in the monarchy who can reign that's an adult is Athaliah. Now, Athaliah decides this is her opportunity so she is going to go through the king's harem and she is going to wipe out every child. So she, like the pharaoh of, uh, prior to the, of the oppression, like a Herod, she wipes out all the children in the line. But Jehoram had a daughter named Jehosheba who was married to the high priest at the time, Jehoiada. And Jehoiada, Je, Je, excuse me, Jehosheba takes the infant Joash... And hides him in the temple and gives him to the high priest Jehoiada who in turn raises this infant. So the light has flickered. It's almost out. All that's left is this infant son. And of course, he is going to eventually stage a coup when he is six years of age. This kid is positive to doctrine. He is taught the Word. He is taught by Jehoiada who drills him on the Word of God and on the principles of the Mosaic Law – and by this time, nobody else even knows what the Mosaic Law consists of because all the copies have been destroyed, except for one or two that are left in the temple. Now, there's no return to the word, so the people still, even under Joash, there's still not going to be the word of God in the land. That won't happen until you get down to uh, jo- uh, back up, until you get down to Josiah, and under Josiah, which is much later. Uh, down into the. Josiah comes along down in around 640s when he comes to the throne. It's not till you get down to Josiah that there, he, he has a heart for the Lord. He's going to go back in and rebuild the temple. And when he does, because it's fallen in disrepair because of all the idolatry and nobody cares about God, when he goes back into the temple, guess what they discover? They discover the Mosaic Law. And and nobody even knows about it. They've forgotten about it. And and it's a tremendous example of what the Word of God, the impact the Word of God has on people because they bring it out. They start making copies. They send the priests and prophets out throughout the land to read the Mosaic Law to the people. And there is one of those rare events in history where there is a true and genuine revival. And And one of the things that marks a true and genuine revival, not like some of the stuff you hear today, is not a lot of enthusiastic excitement and emotionalism and all this other stuff. It is marked by the clear and precise teaching of the Word of God and people's response to the teaching of the Word of God. And it shows in their changed lifestyle. So I think that Josiah, or Joash and Josiah, these are two of the great revivals that take place in the southern kingdom during their history when the people returned to the land. The sad part about the story of Joash is once his mentor Jehoiada dies, when Joash is in his 20s, he assimilates to the paganism in the country. See, the state religion, what, what happens with these kings is they return the state religion emphasis back to the Mosaic law and the Mosaic emphasis. But the heart of the people does not go back to the Lord for the most part, with with a few minor exceptions during this time. And so because of that, they eventually are going to go out under divine discipline. Now as you get further down into your chart, go back to the chart here, we go down from Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah. Uzziah is the fourth of the great kings in the south. It is under Uzziah's ministry, or under Uzziah's reign, that Isaiah has most of his ministry. Now, it is during this time because Isaiah is pronouncing judgment on the southern kingdom, warning them that because of their idolatrous heart, because they have basically rejected God at the popular level, that they will continue to come under divine discipline. Now, the dates for Isaiah... Now, there you can see it. The dates for Isaiah, right in here... The dates for Isaiah are roughly seven fifty to six eighty. He's under the king two kings really. He's under uh he operates under Uzziah and down into the from Uzziah down to uh Hezekiah's reign. It he covers Jotham and he has a long reign, uh long period. He starts with Uzziah and goes down to Hezekiah. Hezekiah, excuse, me, I said Uzziah earlier. Isaiah's reign is primarily under Hezekiah. Second Kings. Oh, I thought I had this overhead. 2 Kings 18, 5B to 7A says this about Hezekiah. Wouldn't you like this to be your divine epitaph? There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow Him. He kept the commands of the, the Lord had given Moses and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. So Hezekiah is the greatest of all of the southern kings. Now when you look at Isaiah, Isaiah is one of the great prophecies in the Old Testament and it's really divided into three sections. The first section covers the first 35 chapters. So, book 1 of Isaiah is chapters 1 through 35 and this deals with the Assyrian background. Assyria is now has invaded the northern kingdom or invades it in 722. Isaiah begins his ministry about 730 just prior to the Assyrian destruction of the northern kingdom and so he warns that Assyria will come and that they will come all the way to the door of Jerusalem but they will not be able to take Jerusalem. He predicts the overflow of the north, but he says that they will not completely destroy the southern kingdom. He predicts that Assyria will go into Egypt and uh, he uses a metaphor that that it's going to, come, going to come like a flood as the water rises up a man's legs to his waist and torso all the way up to the nose and the head but it won't completely cover it. And the nose and the head, that's Jerusalem. So like a flood, Assyria comes comes right to the gates Of Jerusalem and then God intervenes and wipes out the entire Assyrian army. The angel of the Lord comes down during the night and while the army sleeps, everybody's killed. Uh, Sennacherib wakes up the next day, the army's gone, everyone's dead and he flees back to Assyria and is soon assassinated because, of course, when you have an army that size, several hundred thousand wiped out, it is going to and shockwaves through the entire empire. So the first 35 chapters deal with this Assyrian background. The second section, which is book 2, chapters 36 through 66, is going to also deal in part in 36 and 37 with the Assyrian invasion and then the remainder of that section, or excuse me, from book 2 is a sort. I forgot my glasses this morning so I can't, I'm having trouble reading some of my numbers. Um, book 2 is 36 to 39. It's a short section. Uh, 36 to 37 is, it describes the Assyrian invasion. And then 38 and 39 is a prediction of the Babylonian invasion. And book 3 then is the predictive period which predicts that the Jews would go into captivity in Babylon. This is chapters 40 through 66. And it focuses on the redemptive solution that God will send through the suffering servant. That's one of the greatest sections of prophecy related to the Messiah and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, especially in Isaiah uh, 53. Now, from this point on, once the northern kingdom goes out under divine discipline in 722 B.C., from that point on, you come to Judah alone. From 722 down to 586, Uh, you have Hezekiah and then he's followed by Manasseh who is Hezekiah's son he reigns for 45 years and he is the most evil and wicked of all the kings in fact scripture says of Manasseh thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel now look at that Here's Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the apex of rule in Israel. He is the greatest, I mean Judah, he is the greatest of all the kings and has a heart for the Lord. And his son Manasseh is just 180 degrees opposite, undoes everything that his father did. He does more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed. That's all the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Ebusites, The whole mess of pagan religion is... is, uh, is not nearly as evil and wicked as Manasseh. They have, they're have they offering their children as life sacrifices to be burned in the arms of Molech. They've adopted all the pagan practices, and then they try to improve on them. Not in a good sense. They just become more perverse. But eventually, God's grace hits even Manasseh. And at the end of his reign, Manasseh, gives us an example of what repentance really means. He changes his mind and he turns back to the Lord. We see this in 2 Chronicles 33:12, and when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his he, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication. And brought him again to Jerusalem. Manasseh had been taken out as a captive by the Babylonians. Returned, brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, that Yahweh, was God. Now, after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David. So he rebuilds the fortifications of Jerusalem. After this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon, in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. And he encircled the Ahel with it, and made it very high. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities. So he rebuilds the military. He also removed, verse 15, this is the key. This is, this is what true repentance looks like. It's not emotional. It's not feeling sorry for your sins. It is recognizing the truth and changing the way you do things on the basis of the truth. He also removed the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and he threw them outside the city. So he tears down all the high places, removes all the altars, institutes Yahweh worship as state, the state religious worship again. But the problem is that it's you can't institute a revival from the top down. It has to come from the bottom up. And the people still have their allegiance to all of the idols. Verse 16, he set up the altar of the Lord, and he sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and he ordered Judah to serve... Yahweh, God of Israel, nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. That is, uh, they, they continue to assimilate the two. See, they're going to the high places, which is like going to a place of pagan worship and calling it Yahweh. That's what's going on here. So they're still assembling. They try to, they're like many people today. They want to believe everything is true. And if you believe everything is true, then you believe that nothing is true. Because if you believe everything, is all self-contradictory and you're in trouble. Now during this time, as you see on the chart, you have the prophecy of Nahum fits in during this same time at the end of Manasseh's reign. And then you have the rise, one last sign of grace before the final judgment on the southern kingdom is the rise of Josiah. He leads the people in a true... uh, There's a true reform movement. There's the return of... the. uh, they, They discover the law in the temple. They rebuild the temple. But yet, it doesn't have any effect on the nation as a whole because the people are still rejecting the Lord. You see on the side here that the major prophets that cover are the prophets that write during the reign of Josiah, Jehoahaz, and Jehoiakim. These are very short reigns. Jehoiakim is about 12 years, followed by his um, uncle Jehoiakim, 597. He's very short. He's wicked king. In fact, that's the period. He's also called Koniah, Jehoiakim or Coniah, and that's referred to as the Coniah curse because he was so wicked God announced a curse on his line that the, the, his line would be cut off from the throne of Judah. Now that's important because that relates to the, uh, to the genealogical line of Joseph. Joseph is a descendant of Jeconiah or Coniah. That's one other reason why Jesus could not be the physical child of, of uh, Joseph because that would mean he was a descendant of Coniah and God cut off Coniah line from Mary, descended from another son of David, from, from uh, Nathan, and so goes down to uh, Jesus has true inheritance rights to the throne of David through a different ro- side of the royal line. So we see at this period that, that this comes to a rapid close by 580, 586. Now, let's back up and look at this last section. You can divide the period this 100-year uh, period into three sections, Manasseh and Ammon, from 687 to 640. put the chart back up here. This first period is Manasseh. Manasseh and Ammon. Baal worship is the official religion, and then there is a... Um, Uh, a revival right there at the end. Then you have the period of Josiah, which is a period of reformation. And then all of Josiah's sons do evil and just lead the people into worse and worse examples of, of idolatry. Now during this time, if you're going to read through the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, if you're going to read the minor prophets, you can't understand what's going on if you don't have some understanding of the background of the history that's taking place. Because they are grounded in what God is doing historically in the life of Israel. If we look at our map, God is using the Assyrian Empire. He starts off with the Assyrian Empire and then between about 620 to 610, the Egyptian empire from the south comes back into prominence and God uses the Egyptians and then the Assyrian empire is wiped out and defeated by Babylon. And from uh, 605 down to 539, the Babylon, Babylonian empire is used to discipline uh, the nation of Israel. What it, It's interesting to observe in this that all of the things that happen in terms of the The rise and the decline of power in the nations that surround Israel, for example, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Arameans, the the, uh, Egyptians, their fortunes whether those nations increase in power or decline in power, is directly related to what is happening spiritually in Israel. And the point there is that the believer throughout history determines the course of history because God is going to either be blessing or cursing in relationship to positive volition. And when Israel was positive, then these nations went into decline. Of course, what happens is that the liberals come along and we try to reverse it. So when you read history, you'll see that, well, because uh, the Assyrian Empire went into decline, Israel was then able to, to assert itself. Well, the, the reverse is the case, because Israel was positive to doctrine, they began to assert themselves, and, and because God is protecting them, He causes problems in these other nations. So, as goes the believer, so goes the client nation, whether it's the covenant nation of Israel or client nation in the church age. So, we see the, the the, how God uses all of these nations and they are warned time and time again. Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies that the Babylonians are going to come and they will, will completely destroy Israel, uh, Judah and the southern kingdom and take them into captivity. Then Jeremiah begins to warn them. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because of his tremendous concern and compassion for the southern kingdom warning them and yet the people reject him. And one, There's one passage early on in Jeremiah that I always remember uh, because Jeremiah is very young. It's at the beginning of his ministry and he's not in Jerusalem yet. He's still out in the country and he's announcing judgment and he's just rejected and ridiculed and everybody's running him down. And he goes to the Lord. He has a whining session. He says, Lord, why, you know, I, I can't do this. Why, do you, why have you picked me to be the one to do this, to announce your judgment. You know the people are negative. They're not going to listen to me. Why me? And God says to him, if you can't walk with the footman, how do you think you're going to run with the horses? You know, there's a great principle there that we have to learn to deal with the small adversities and oppositions and problems in life because that's what prepares us to go on in the spiritual life to deal with the greater things that God has for us. And if we don't learn to walk with the footmen, then we'll never run with the horsemen. We'll never get to that point in our spiritual life where we have and experience all the blessings and all the things that God has for us uh, because we haven't learned the doctrine and applied it to be able to develop the, the spiritual strength and courage to handle that, uh, that opposition. So we go, we continue. We see in, Isaiah, uh, in Jeremiah, we have the Lamentation that Jeremiah writes. That's the book of Lamentations that is um, going in the wrong direction. We've had the book of Lamentations, which is Jeremiah's lament over the fall of Jerusalem. If, if you read it, you just see where his, where his whole heart is. Let's look at some of the things he says. Jeremiah 3.10 And yet, in spite of all this, he's talking about Judah. Her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart. There we go. In yeah, spite of all all this, in spite of the judgment of the northern kingdom, in spite of all the things that God did, all the prophets He sent, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me, God says, with all her heart. This is what happens after Manasseh. They don't return with all her heart, but rather in deception. It's just They just have ritual without reality. This is really the beginning of Pharise- the whole Pharisaical movement. It is this outward observance of the law without a true internal change of mind towards the Lord and submission to the authority of the Lord. Then Jeremiah 6:16 6, and following, thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, that is the path of doctrine, where the good way is and walk in it. And you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, the response of the people, we will not walk in it. And I set watchmen over you, God says. These are the prophets. I set watchmen over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet, which is a warning sign. And they said, we will not listen. So warning after warning after warning, and the people do not listen. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to My words, and as for My law, they have rejected it Also, And then he concludes in verse twenty. For what purpose does frankincense come to me from Sheba and the sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable and your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. Ritual without reality is meaningless. So by the end of Josiah's reign, Jehoahaz comes to the throne. He does evil. He shifts his foreign policy. It's at this time that Assyria is taken out in judgment. Now the interesting thing is that God will raise up a nation like Assyria. He sends Jonah to that nation to preach the Gospel. They turn to the Lord, but they eventually become negative. Now, God uses them to discipline the northern kingdom, but in the process, they become anti-Semitic. So now that they're anti-Semitic, God is going to curse those who curse you. He's going to continue to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, and He takes out Assyria under divine discipline and replaces them uh, with Babylon. Babylon. So now uh, the southern kingdom Judah is surrounded by Egypt to the southwest, Babylon to the east. And from 612 to 605, you see uh, Egypt trying to take control of Judah. There's two or three battles with Nebuchadnezzar. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar defeats the Egyptians at the Battle of, of Carchemish. The Babylonians rise up under Nabopolassar. They defeat the Assyrians. His son Nebuchadnezzar is one of the greatest uh, monarchs and powers of all time. And Nebuchadnezzar is the one who, lead, who eventually invades Judah three times in 605, 598, and finally in 586. He comes in and he completely destroys the southern kingdom. It's in 605 that he takes the first group of captives back to uh, the capital in Babylon. And it, among those captives, you find Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are believers. Many of these were probably not believers. It's a mixed bag, just as those who are destroyed and killed in the uh, military uh, encounters are also uh, a mix of believers and unbelievers. And so the nation goes out in uh, defeat. The last two kings are hauled off into captivity. And Jeremiah goes with one branch of of captives. They go down to they flee down to Egypt. So you have a an Egyptian community of Jews. You have another group that is taken out to the east to Babylon. You have a Babylonian group there. And then the lower classes, the unskilled classes, are left in uh, in Judah. Other tribes, other ethnic groups are brought in to repopulate. And so nothing is happening in the land for the next 70 years and that is designed in order to fulfill all of the sabbath the sabbath rests that were mandated under the mosaic law those those sabbatical laws were never fulfilled every seventh year the land was supposed to rest every 49th year it would rest and then the 50th year was a jubilee year it would rest and there would be no work done during that entire period as a sign of their faith rest their dependence upon the lord Israel never fulfilled that, so in order to give the land its rest during all those sabbatical years that they ignored, God takes them out for 70 years, and that's called the Babylonian captivity. And then at the end of that, He begins to return them in 536 B.C. So that's the end of the exile, and we'll come back next time and we'll look at what takes place during the exilic period under... with, with Daniel specifically and the exilic and post-exilic prophets. And that should pretty much get us to the end of our survey of orientation to the Old Testament, which time, now that you have a grasp of all that and you can recite it all back to me in your sleep, we will have a context for understanding what goes on in Judges. And we'll start a series on the book of Judges in the Old Testament. I don't recall ever hearing anybody preach to the book of Judges, but the theme of Judges is what happens to a culture when they're surrounded by moral relativism. And I can't think of a book that has more significance for believers today than a study in Judges. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for this time to look at Your Word, to see how You work in history, how You are gracious to those who are in rebellion to You you go the extra length in order to continuously woo us back to yourself and yet there is always the certainty of judgment. You do not withhold judgment uh, even though you are very gracious that your, your love far exceeds your, your, uh, the degree of your wrath and your judgment. And this is, of course, portrayed ultimately at the cross where Jesus Christ took on himself our judgment. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning that is uncertain of their eternal destiny, Unsure of their salvation, that right now would be the opportunity for them to make that certain by putting their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He is that to which all of the Old Testament points and to which all the New Testament points back to. He is our Savior. He paid the penalty for every sin in human history so that we have to do nothing. Salvation is not based on church attendance or moral reformation or any other human factor. But faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, to think about them, to reflect on these themes of the Old Testament, that we may have a greater understanding and appreciation of what you did during that time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.